before the lights go out. So I'm sure it's just a matter of time till they do. We have some demon has inhabited our light system, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it, even when the electricity is turned off, it works. I'd like you to figure that out and get back with me and let us know. So I, uh, Edward called me yesterday. He had finished setting everything up and getting ready for today. And he said, Randy, the lights are on and I don't even know how to turn them off. I can't turn them off. And I, he, I said, just go to the breaker box and see what that does. So sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. All right, take your Bibles. We're going to be- begin a brand new attribute of our God today, of our Father, our Daddy. Who's your Daddy? We're going to begin a brand new attribute today. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. So as you're doing that, let me just kind of give you a little information and make sure you have it. So as going forward and we'll see what uh, happens as we progress with the coronavirus and protocols and all of those things. As of next Sunday, the, the 14th, we're going to open up both campuses. We're going to open back up to doing small groups. And we're leaving that up to each individual small group, the leader and the people that are in the group. There will no longer, there still will be no children's activities in the building, uh, either campus, but the, the groups that want to meet at 9.30 here can. Again, you have to practice social distancing and we wear masks and the groups are, our groups are small enough that we can do that, but that's what the governor has asked us to do and that's where we are and we're going to do that as good citizens as res- out of respect for each other. So starting next Sunday, like my class, we'll be out there in the lobby, but we're going to spread out. We're not going to set up the curtains like we normally do, but for those that want to come at 930 and are comfortable, we'll be there and we'll be spread out. And my mouth, I've discovered, is loud enough that that'll probably work. At least that's what I've been told. So um, uh, Gary's group, for example, they're going to meet, spread out. Uh, Donna and Beverly, if they choose to meet, the room will be available. Student ministry. The small groups can meet throughout the week. You can uh, reserve the building uh, through Ainsley. Contact her. You can reserve the Hannah building across the street or if you want to meet here at night. But again, have to wear a mask, practice social distancing. There'll be hand sanitizer available, uh, again, out of respect for each other and the protocols and what the governor has asked us to do. And that begins next Sunday. Remember, no, from birth through the fifth grade, no activities at this point. So... The building will be available starting next Sunday, the 14th, and again, uh, with those caveats. All right, turn to Hebrews chapter 6, if you haven't already. We're going to begin today, as I mentioned a moment ago, looking at a brand new attribute of our God. One thing I want to start out before we get into the attribute, I just want to share a little survey with you that that, uh, I read this week. The survey is a few years old, about five years old. And it was done by the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. And they discovered something really interesting. That 20% of non-Christians in North America, those who classify themselves as not believers in Jesus Christ, non-Christians in in North America, 20% of them do not, quote, personally know a single follower of Jesus Christ. A lot of that is the circles that you run in and who your personal friends are. But they also work with people and probably are around those who we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Yet, 20% of 
Didn't even know one. That's approximately 14 million people in North America don't even know a Christian, have a Christian friend or even a Christian acquaintance. Approximately 14 million. If you, if you talk about specific religious groups, for example, Buddhist, it's 65%. Chinese people, 75%. Hindus, 78%. 43% of Muslims in the United States of America don't personally know a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you go around the world, which they did and do the same study, take a guess of what the percentage is worldwide. For those who do not know a, someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what would you guess the percentage is? Those of you at home, feel free to guess. Anybody? 50%? Play, we'll play Price is Right. You can win a brand new car. Mike's going to donate a brand new car. 87? Anybody else? <laughs> like Plinko here in a minute. Anybody else? Want to take a stab? None of those are correct. One is very close. So you got Dick Hunter, Mike Clay. You have to decide which one is very close. It's all about a car. You want to go over. Anybody else? It's 80%. Think about that number. 80%. On an average worldwide, don't know a personal Someone who claims, personally knows someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Why is that important to us? Because that's the reason we exist as Christians. We are placed on planet earth to be salt and light where we are. No matter what you do for a living, no matter where you find yourself, no matter your interaction, whether it's on uh, social media or in person or just whatever it might be, writing, the old telephone, whatever it might be, you interact with human beings. And in my life, and, and I realize that I'm a pastor and have been for a long time, 36 years. But prior to that, I was a Christian for 14 years in sales for a while and in college and in high school and in all the relationships that you go through. And the most important thing, and I, I don't want you to, I'm not telling you this so you'll think highly of Randy. The most important thing to me in every relationship that I have ever had is that the other person knows that I'm a Christian. Whatever that relationship might be. Even in sales, I had to do my job, but I wanted them to know that I cared about them as human beings. Not just as somebody that either I was selling something to or I was using and receiving in the back room to get my products out and get them up in the right way so that I could sell more greeting cards. Or in college, the people that I met, the people that I played sports with, and I played all kinds of stuff in college, racquetball, tennis, badminton. Uh, badminton was a blast. You think, badminton, that's terrible. But indoor badminton is, is a blast. I loved it. Uh, loved racquetball, still do to this day. And basketball on campus, you can go to the field house at the University of Memphis and play basketball. You meet a lot of people just hanging out and then working for us as Christians. And the reason... We are on the planet that God, we mentioned this last week, that God just doesn't redeem us and then take us to heaven. It's because he wants us to communicate who he is. We're the chosen ones. We're the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. But God has said, I want you to go into all the world and glorify my name. The great commission where Jesus, the last thing he said before he ascended from the planet was, as you go, 
make learner followers of me, teaching them what I have taught you and I will be with you always. Sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes you're persecuted or mocked or shunned. Of course, that comes with the territory. But as we've talked about over the last three weeks, what was the attribute we looked at for the last three weeks? God is, we've got to go back and do all that again. God is love. And so you love those who don't reciprocate. You love those who don't love you in return. Why do you love them? Because God created them in his image. They're human beings for whom Jesus Christ died. And you want them to know that. So in a loving, compassionate, respectful, gentle, all biblical terms used to describe this, you listen, you learn, you interact, you dialogue. You want them to know who your Jesus is, who your God is. So today, we come to the next attribute that we're going to look at. And all of these, at least for me, and I hope for you, as we study them, I leave Every one of these, as I study each of these attributes, and we've been looking at holiness and sovereignty and all the different attributes that we look at as we continue to look at them, I leave every one of them encouraged, lifted up, buoyed, bolstered, whatever term you want to use about who my daddy is. Abba Father, verses there we've gone over and over. So today... We're going to look at, I think, again, a very exciting attribute of our God, very important for us to understand and let Scripture say what it says about it, execute passages and see what the the Lord says about this attribute, that our God is immutable. What does that mean? He does not change. Probably the most famous quote in the Bible about the immutability of God is what? He's the same yesterday, today. And forever. You should pause and meditate on things like that. That your God is the same yesterday, today, right now, in the midst of your crisis, whatever it might be, and forever. He does not change. He's immutable. The same God who spoke the universe into existence is our dad, who is in the midst of our Fire, always. He's on the other side. He will, as we're going to see, he will carry us all the way through. I love to go back and think about, meditate on, on particularly this attribute. I love to meditate on pictures in scripture of God walking in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. That's the same God that's in our midst right now, in your home, wherever we may be, Together, right now, that same eternal God, and that's another attribute that we will get to, the eternality of our God, he's the same. The same God, we're going to look at Abraham today. The same God who spoke to Abraham and said, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land I will show you. And he made him that great promise that we're going to look at. That's the same God that says to us today, I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. I'm right there with you, and I'm in control. We talked about sovereignty. I'm unique. I'm holy. I am God. 
by definition. So I want you to notice on your handout, what's today's attribute? God is, which means what? Does not change. Now look at the application. This is what's so cool about studying the Bible. You always want to study it to apply it. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to take away from studying this attribute of you? And then what can I do with that knowledge? Never knowledge for knowledge's sake. Never knowledge to impress someone. Always, Lord, I want to learn about you so that I can be changed and go do what you want me to do with that knowledge. What are we going to do with the knowledge that our God is immutable? Look at the application. As a result of understanding the immutability of God, we have three things that we're going to look at. One is security. One is hope. And one is assurance over the next two weeks. You've heard me say many times that my favorite word in the Bible to describe what it means to live as a Christian on a daily basis is that we have hope. We have hope. I stood this week and did my first social distancing funeral. It was me and the, this lady passed away and an old friend of mine, his mom, and she had told him years ago, and I've only seen her a couple of times, but when I, I did her husband's funeral years ago, and she had told her son that when I die, I want Randy to do my funeral. And I've not spoken to her since, and he called me and said, my mom's passed away, and you're up. So we meet at the gravesite again, with social distancing and what's allowed right now, and there was me and him and his wife and his brother and, and his brother's wife and four gentlemen from the funeral home that were older than me. I'm telling you this for a reason. Because they pull up with the hearse and the casket, and somebody's got to carry that casket from the hearse to the grave. And they looked at me, and I said, I got a bad back. I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I'm the preacher. They're looking around, and I said, Brinkley, it's your mom. But we laughed about it, and we got it taken care of. But every time I stand at the grave of a, a fellow believer, I'm happy for that person. But I've also stood at the graves and officiated at funerals of people that I didn't know if they were born again. Probably the hardest thing you ever do and as a pastor is to officiate at a funeral and you're not sure. And in many cases, you probably, based on their life, their testimony, their own words, that they don't know Jesus Christ. That's hard, but yet the reason I love to officiate at funerals is I can say to everyone who's standing there who is alive, you can have hope. Death does not have to terrify you. There is no sting if you're in Jesus Christ, as the sweet lady was. When you're born again, you have the assurance your hand out again. You have the security that he's going to carry you forever. He does not change. He doesn't save you and then change his mind. If you're born again, you're born again and you have that forever. You have that hope, that Greek meaning confident expectation. I know whom I have believed. That assurance. Those are the things we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. Just for a moment, briefly about biblical hopes. We're going to focus on that more next week. The hope that we have as Christians is not optimism, even though we are optimistic as a group. Not everybody is an optimistic individual. 
A lot of times in marriages, one is very pessimistic and one is very optimistic. Sometimes that's a good thing. But from a Christian point of view, when we talk about biblical hope, it's not having a positive outlook. It's not having a cheery disposition. It's not living in a fantasy world. It's realizing, based on the historic fact of who our Savior is, who our God is, what his word teaches us, we confidently expect A to happen or B to happen in the future. A, that I'm going to die. It's appointed unto man wants to die, and after that, judgment. I know I'm going to die. And even if you don't believe scripture, obviously, we all die. But secondly, as a believer, I'm not just optimistic about the future because I'm an optimistic person. I'm optimistic about the future because I know where my hope lies. It's not in Randy. It's not in my good works. It's not in a lifetime of being a decent human being, a provider, a good friend. And those things are important, a good spouse. Those things are important. But for a Christian, my hope rests in what Jesus did at Calvary and rising from the dead. I place my faith in that to regenerate me, to save me, to carry me forever. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Because my God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're going to see how all scripture, this ties together. In Romans chapter 15, in every funeral that I officiate at, I share this verse. Now may the God of hope fill you with joy, all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. End quote. We as Christians, because God himself indwells us and the Holy Spirit is not only with us, he's in us and he's in our midst and he's in our lives. What we have to share with people in the midst of a crisis at a funeral Whatever the difficulty might be, we have something to share. We are empowered by the person and the presence of God himself. We carry hope, confident expectation that we know in Christ we're going to be okay. Again, we talked about this during this crisis with the coronavirus, COVID-19. One of the things you see in every commercial on television and everywhere else, you see it all over we're in this together and we're going to get through it. And that's true. But in Christ, we absolutely know that because he is the truth. Things that you read in scripture and metaphors that are chosen by God to describe Jesus are not accidental. When he said, I am the truth, he specifically wanted them to understand, you're going to hear things about me that are not true. But I'm telling you, when I speak to you, you see it all the time in the gospels. And the literal is, I who have absolute authority speak to you truth. Or in some translations you'll say, verily, verily, I say unto you. I with absolute authority speak truth to you. If the one with absolute authority is speaking truth to you, what do I need to do? I need to pay attention. It's important. He got something he wants me to know and react to. That's why the most important thing Jesus ever said to the disciples prior to his commissioning them was he looked at him one day and said, who do men say that I am? They said, some say Elijah, some say the prophet. And he stopped and he looked at him and he said, who do you individually say that I am? That's when Peter made that great statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
That's what Jesus wants from me. Randy, you individually, Randy, who do you say that I am? And now how are you going to impact your world as salt and light? You're part of the world as a follower of Jesus Christ. Our hope is different in a constantly changing world. And if you don't believe our world is constantly changing, you're not paying attention. A, a crazy place in a constantly changing world. I was thinking, just again this week, even preparing this message and got to spend a little time with, with uh, three of my granddaughters this week and thinking, just go back to January 1st of this year. February 1st of this year. Even March 1st of this year. Last haircut I had was March, early March. I'm starting to look like John again. And then suddenly the world changed in a radical, crazy way. Here's an application. And God, as I'm sitting in my office in my house this week, again working on this last week and this week, in a world that changes like that, that fast, that often, What's the greatest truth I can step back and relax in? My God is what? He's immutable. He does not change. He didn't wake up March 9th and go, what the heck is coronavirus? I did. But he didn't. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always working good. Scripture It all ties together. He's always working good. He cannot change. All that he's ever been, he always will be. What he currently is, he always will be. He cannot change because he is perfect. All his attributes are infinite. And so when you get to Hebrews 6, we have the assurance. If I'm in Christ, I'm good. Despite the fact I'm flawed. He's not. He gives me assurance. He gives me hope. And he gives me the security that he is God. And he will carry me through. Quick example. When Moses asked God what his name was, what did he say? You all know the verse. Exodus 3.14. What, what did God tell Moses his name was? I am. I am. Not I will be. Sometimes this is who I am. I am who I am. That will not change. Now you go tell the Hebrews and I'll let Pharaoh know in my own way. I am who I am. If God could just show up in the room today, by the way, he's already here, but if he just kind of walked through the door like we would love to see, although we might freak out, what's the one thing he'd want us to know? I am. You could trust me. Because I'm not only God, As Christians, I'm your father. I'm going to give you good and perfect gifts because that's the only kind I know how to give. It's the only kind I give are good and perfect gifts. God is who he is, and he will always be who he is. He's immutable. There's some verses I want to quote for you. This is just a small sampling. Numbers 23. God to Moses to the people. In the law, 
God is not man. Just an aside from Randy, aren't you glad? I've told you many times, what are the two great truths in the universe? There is a God and you ain't it. You ain't it and I'm glad. Back to the verse. God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? In the Psalms, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Another psalmist. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From eternity to eternity, God has no past, present, and future. Moses, my name is I am. I'm outside time. I see the end from the beginning. All those verses. You want to be encouraged in a difficult time? Just meditate on stuff like that. Your God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He sees everything simultaneously. Man, we can't grip that because we're finite. Another attribute we're going to look at, our God is infinite. Encouragement. So you get to Hebrews 6, finally. And the context of Hebrews 6, is, it's fascinating. The author of Hebrews, obviously we don't know who that is, he's writing to Christians who are also Jewish, and they're struggling. They're being persecuted because they've left Judaism and turned to Christianity, and as Jews they've lost their jobs, they've been ostracized by their families, they're being persecuted because they're Jews that have turned their back on Judaism. And they're struggling with this new faith, this new covenant in Christ. And so they're tempted to return to Judaism in the old covenant and the old ways. Let's do it like we used to with the Mosaic law. And let's go back to all of that. The entire book of Hebrews is addressing that problem. Look at chapter 8, verse 1, and then we're going right back to 6. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest, we as Christians, and it's specifically addressing Jews, who are Christians. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We have such a high priest. Christ, Jesus is our Christ. Jesus is our Messiah, our high priest. He's ascended and he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, majesty on high. He is an authority over all. That's who our Messiah is. You don't want to go back. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. So the goal of the author is this. He's trying to encourage them to persevere through the persecution. Trying to get them to focus on their Christ. Why? The key word of the entire book of Hebrews is the word superior. He's trying to get them to focus on the person of Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah because he is superior to Moses. He's superior to the Old Covenant. He's superior to Abraham. He's superior to the law. He's superior to the temple. He's superior to the sacrificial system. His blood is superior to the blood of bulls and goats. On and on and on. That's what's addressed in Hebrews. Why do you want to go back when you've got the best? Focus on the person of Christ. 
And so he uses two, in our passage that we're going to look at, he's going to use two great examples for them to get this. One is an historical example and one is a metaphor. We're going to look at the two examples. We're going to look one today and one next week. The, the historic example is Abraham. The metaphor is that of an anchor. We'll talk about that next week. We're going to look at Abraham this week. He's trying to get them to focus, trust Jesus, their Messiah, their Christ, like their father Abraham did. Remember, he's writing to what group of people? Jews, who have come to trust Jesus as their Messiah. And he's saying to them, you need to trust Jesus as your Messiah like Abraham did. Abraham, who is your father. Abraham, who is the father of Judaism. Abraham, who is the father of all the great religions to this day in 2020. Three great religions on planet Earth. Abraham is is called the father of all three. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So he's saying to these Jews, "You, you revere Abraham. Abraham worshiped the Messiah, looked forward to his coming. I love that great story in John chapter 8 where Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees about Father Abraham. And you know the passage and that great verse, John eight fifty eight. Jesus has said, Abraham looked forward to my day and he said these incredible words. Before Abraham was, I am. And every Jew in the audience knew exactly what he meant. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be Yahweh, Jehovah. If you read on, it says, at that point, they knew we have to kill him. We got to get rid of him. That's blasphemy. He's claiming to be God, and he can forgive sins. Only God can do that. Oh, yeah, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to know Abraham. Well, look at the context back at chapter 6. Look at verse 9. 6 9, the writer says, Beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation as those who are born again. Though we speak in this manner about being immature. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name. And that you have ministered to the saints and you do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here's what he's saying. The sign that you're genuinely born again, we talked about this last week, is you have shown that. You're ministering to each other. You're loving one another. Your labor of love toward the, the name of our God, to the saints, to each other, you're loving one another. So don't become sluggish in that. And the word sluggish in our vernacular today very simply means don't become lazy. Don't get satisfied. Persevere. Press on. Of course it's going to be hard. It's, it, it was, Jesus told you it was going to be hard. He said, if, if you choose to follow me, you're probably going to be killed. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross means, come on, we're going to go die. He said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. So persevere. Don't get sluggish. Don't give up. Now look at verse 12 leading into Abraham. 
He says, instead of getting lazy, instead of getting sluggish, do this. Quote, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then he begins to talk about Abraham, the father of Judaism, the father of the Jews, by blood, and the father of the faithful. God does not change. God has proven himself trustworthy. Let's go back to Abraham and begin there. And therefore, we can trust him. We can have assurance. We can have security. We can have hope. And so then in verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Remember, he's talking to Jews who are struggling with Christianity because they're being persecuted and they're losing and they're hurting and they're wanting to go back to Judaism. He's saying, wait a minute, who's the father of Jews? It's Abraham. So let's start with him. And so he uses Abraham's example. Number one on your handout. God's promises never change. God's promises never change. Verse 14. And he swore by no one greater than himself. Verse 14 saying, surely blessing I will bless you. Multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he, Abraham, had patiently endured, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. Verse 14 is God, he's quoting Genesis where God says to Abraham, this is what I, God, am going to do for you, Abraham. Look at verse 14 again. In blessing I will bless you. Multiplying I will multiply you. This is the great Abrahamic covenant. You can go back and study it in Genesis. The Bible tells us Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him in righteousness. We're going to get to that. He was born again by faith, not by works. So he makes his great covenant with Abraham, which, by the way, all of history from that moment forward and everything about faith in the one true God comes from the Abrahamic covenant, every bit of it. Because God was saying, in this covenant, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless every nation, and I'm going to bring a seed. We'll see that later. Singular, that seed being the Christ. Put it all together. God said, Abraham, I'll make you this great promise. And God's promises never change. When I tell you I'm going to do something, I will do it. If you study history, you read the Old Testament, you go back and read the history of the nation of Israel, how, how often were they faithful to their God? Not very. Not very. There was always a remnant, a small number, but he kept having to send them into captivity, the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, just to get their attention, to bring them back to following the one true God because he does not change. So in my relationship, applicably for us, in my relationship with God, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if something has changed and it's worse, whose fault is it? It would be me. How I respond to whatever I'm facing. Do I respond in faith or do I respond in sin? Do I trust God or do I blame God? Do I want to feel sorry for myself or do I want to trust my God? Or do I want to let him use that difficult moment for me to share witness to someone else? So he gives Abraham this great promise. You know the story well. God does things for a reason. So he says to Abraham, I'm going to give you 
a seed. Sarah's going to have a son. Your wife, Sarah, is going to have a son. And through that son, he will be the heir through whom I'm going to bring fulfillment of this great promise. How many years was it before that happened? 25 years. Think about that. 25 years. By the way, is God on a timetable like we are? Remember, he, his name is I am. He's outside time. Now, Abraham, just like we are, we operate today, tomorrow, a couple of years from now, past, present, future, space-time continuum was for our benefit, not God's. He doesn't. He is outside it. We're in it. So what he says to us is, in it, trust the one who's outside it, who's in control of it. Abraham, I'm making this great promise. Isaac, at the time he didn't know his name, make you this great promise. Now, over that 25-year period, did Abraham always trust God? The answer is no. He made some mistakes. He had doubts. He had struggles. He even tried to help God out. You know the story of Ishmael having a child by his handmaiden, Hagar, and said, here, God, I now have a son. I'm going to allow you to bless my son. By the way, if you think that's weird and unusual, there's an entire construct of theology today that that's the way they operate. God, here's what I want you to bless. I'm claiming your blessing on this, Lord. Now let's go on. And God said to Abraham, No, I told you, Sarah, not Hagar. And by the way, that decision by Abraham to not trust God completely and to try to help God out and have a better idea than God is still a problem in our world today. Today. He had doubts, he had struggles. Romans chapter 4, ultimately, and I love this picture. I'll share in a moment. I want to read the passage to you. Ultimately, Abraham is the father of the faith. The Bible says this about Abraham in Romans 4. Not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb when Isaac was born. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced. Three things, strengthened in faith, glory to God, fully convinced that God was that what God had promised, God was able to perform, and therefore it, quote, from Genesis, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was not perfect. Ishmael being an example, Abraham made mistakes. Please see this. So important. You're not perfect either. I'm not perfect. We we know that. All you got to do is call my wife. You'll know. We're not perfect. But our God is. And so what he says, I've proven myself not just to be perfect, but to be faithful, trustworthy, so trust me. 
I know, Abraham, it's been 25 years. And I know you're 100. I know your wife is 90. And I know that in the eyes of the world, you can't have children. But what did I tell you? Your wife's going to have a son. And sure enough, she did. And you know the story, what they name Isaac in Hebrew. What does it mean? Laughter. Because she laughed when God said, you're going to have a baby. Laughter. What God says, I told you I would do something. Therefore, I'm going to do it. Trust me. And ultimately, here's the beautiful thing for us. Yes, Abraham made mistakes. He had doubts. He wavered. Did God throw him out with the trash? No. Why? Because God had said what? Through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless every nation on the planet. You're not perfect, Abraham, but I'm going to use you for the greatest event that will ever happen in history. So I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But God has said to us, I've saved you for a purpose. Now go Live out that purpose. Even though you're not perfect, you will make mistakes. You're not always going to be what I want you to be. Go do it anyway. Trust me and act on that faith. And here's the point. It says Abraham ultimately was strengthened in faith. Didn't waver ultimately. Gave glory to God and saw God come through. Look at verse 15. And so after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. He patiently endured. That phrase, patiently endured in the original language, is the exact opposite of the word sluggish in verse 12. Instead of being lazy in faith and not trusting God, he patiently endured. Yes, made mistakes, but ultimately he patiently endured, was not lazy, trusted God, and God gave him Isaac. And then you remember the great story where he takes out, God gives him Isaac and then says what? Uh, take him up on Mount Moriah and cut his throat. And Abraham didn't hesitate at that point. Now as a father, I don't know if I could do that. As a mom, would you be all right with that? Sarah, yeah, uh, by the way, Sarah, I'm going to go cut Isaac's throat. I'll be back. That's not what he said. He went up to the mountain. He said, my, he, said that he told his servants that were with him, the boy and I are going to go yonder and worship. And what was, the next, what was the next word he said? We, plural pronoun, we're coming back. Because God's going to raise him from the dead. Hebrews tells us. Faith. So here's the point for us as we draw near to closing out today. Abraham's faith was based on the character of God, not based on anything else. My faith, your faith, as a Christian, is based on the character of Jesus Christ. Not your good works, not your church affiliation, nothing but the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth who died on the cross and rose again to pay for our sins. When Abraham died, God had made him a great promise, three-pronged promise. You're going to have an heir, you're going to have a land, and you're going to have this great seed. 
Everybody's, all the nations are going to be blessed. The promised land, we talk about it all the time. It's where the Exodus, they were headed out to the promised land. When Abraham died, you know how much real estate he owned in Canaan, in the promised land? When he died, how much he owned? He owned one cave that he had gotten to bury his wife. That's it. God said, all the land is yours. So as we close out today, I want you to flip over to chapter 11 in Hebrews. Chapter 11, look at verse 8. 11, 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance, the promised land, Canaan. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He trusted God, left Ur of the Chaldees, headed to the promised land. He never got to own it, but he patiently endured and waited for what's eternal life, just like we do. This life can be very, very hard. Very hard. Now look at verse 13 in chapter 6 and we're done. 6.13 again. When God made a promise to Abraham, he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself. We're going to deal with this in detail next week, but I want you to notice two things on your handout, and then we're done today. When God makes a promise, the reason they never change is that he will keep them. He's proven that. And secondly, maybe more importantly for us today, he must keep them. He must keep his promises. Why? Because if he doesn't, his nature is denied. God cannot sin because he has by nature, he's perfect, he's holy. So when he tells you something, if he doesn't keep his word, he what? He lied to you. So he not only will keep his word, he has to, or he's not God. And I love the idea here. We'll get into it in more detail next week. But it says he swears by himself. We've talked about this before in relation to other points, other messages. Why did God swear by himself? Because when, even, to, even in courts for years, not so much today, using, people would come in, if you're going to be a witness, what would they have you do? Put your hand on the Bible and, and do what? I swear to Tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me, God. Why did they do it that way? It's exactly what you just read. The reason we did that in our court system is that we were swearing by someone greater than ourselves to punish us if we didn't tell the truth that we would tell the truth. So here it says, there's nobody, God couldn't find anybody greater than himself to swear by, so who did he swear by? Himself. He made a promise, and then he made an oath to guarantee the promise. Even to this day, I know I did it as a kid and did it as an adult. Kids still do it. I heard a kid the other day. They're right now, I heard one say to the other one, turn to the other one and say what? I swear to God. 
How many of you have never said that? See, that's what I thought. We've all done it. If you want somebody else to believe what you're saying, that's what you say. Where he came from. He's greater than me. I swear by his name. God keeps his word. He never changes. Would you bow your heads, please? So our Father, we, again, as we come to you, the body of Christ, and as we worship together here and at home, as Christ Church, that local body, Lord, I pray we would revel, meditate upon, be encouraged by the fact you are immutable. You do not change. You're the same yesterday. You're the same God who dealt with Abraham. You're dealing with us right now. You're the same. We get so much comfort in that. We can go back and read. When you make a promise, you keep it and realize you're going to keep your promises to us. You have to because you're God. If you couldn't keep your promises, we'd have nobody to worship, but you do. Lord, we love you. Pray, and we are encouraged even by the fact that Abraham, despite his sin, you still kept your word to him. And despite our sin, you keep your word to us. That if we're in Christ, we're secure. Despite our sin, it's forgiven. So Lord, I pray we'd be motivated by that. This 20% figure in our circle of friends would grow. They would know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you who he is. Not who you think he is, but who he is. Let me share that with you. Pray you'd use us individually and as a church to share the God who's our dad that is immutable. He does not change. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We close out our time together today, just even at home. Spend that time meditating on who your Savior is, that he does not change.